Revelation 19:11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Thanks, Ray. Well, good morning. If I don't know you, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Cole. And you're walking into the end of Revelation. <laughs> Great time to walk in if it's your first time. Um, this morning we're looking at what does it look like when evil is totally defeated. In 279 BC, King Pyrrhus of Epirus was fighting against the Romans just as Rome was becoming an empire. King Pyrrhus had just won a great battle against the Romans and somebody came up to congratulate him. But as the king looked around at the heavy losses his army had taken, and as he looked across at the Romans and how they were uh, doing, he commented, one other such victory would utterly undo me. This victory he saw didn't serve to advance the cause. Instead, it served the Romans. And in fact, the Romans eventually won the war. One other such victory would utterly undo me. We call that kind of victory a Pyrrhic victory, named after King Pyrrhus. A Pyrrhic victory, where the winning side actually loses ground in the war. We have hope that when evil is totally defeated... It won't be a Pyrrhic victory. It will be a total victory, a complete victory. Instead of losing ground, good will remain good while also removing evil. It has to do both. It will be like the sun rising in the morning and the darkness just is gone. Jesus will show up and evil will be gone. Good will win and it will avoid the temptation to use the most brutal means possible. It will avoid the temptation to say that the ends justify the means, that we can use evil tactics because our opponents are using evil tactics. One such victory, a victory where those fighting on the side of good become evil in the process, 
One such victory would utterly undo us. We have examples of that in literature and in history. After defeating Sauron and taking the ring, Isildur is seduced by the ring's power and dies unceremoniously. Anakin Skywalker, seduced by the power of evil for what might be good motives, but he joins the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. Dropping atomic bombs to end World War II defeated the Japanese, but also unleashed the most destructive weapons in human history and helped to launch the Cold War. The Iraq War took down Saddam Hussein, but created a power vacuum that ISIS came in to fill. One such victory. For evil to be totally defeated, goodness has to do both. It has to remain good and eliminate evil. When we get to the end of Revelation, we're looking at God's final victory over evil. After chapter 20, there will be no more sin, no more death, no more evil, sadness, chaos, rebellion. Nothing will be left that suggests any kind of badness. Evil, Satan, death, they will have been removed from creation. So how does God pull this off? How does he create a total victory? Well, it's by the power of the Lamb, by his word, and his cross. After a book, Revelation, totally dominated by the Lamb's power, we finally get the victory of the Lamb. Just like the rising sun, Christ's presence will chase darkness away. The great prince will defeat the evil dragon and save the princess. The Lamb remains true to his own character. He fully defeats all the powers of evil once and for all and removes all the obstacles that were in the way of his wedding to his bride, the church. No Pyrrhic victory stained by pride or deception or cruelty. This is a true and total victory leading to our living with the Lamb happily ever after. Let's pray and then jump into this text. Father, we praise you that you've had this in mind from the beginning of creation. Before Adam and Eve sinned, before we sinned and participated in the destruction of what you made good, you had in mind that you would send your son Jesus and he would wipe evil out forever. We look forward in hope to what you're going to do and we pray, Father, that you would instill hope in us in such a way that we can live out this victory of the Lamb. This morning, would you use your scriptures, would you shape us by your spirit so that we might become and live as victorious servants of Jesus, followers of Jesus. Make us more lamb-like today as we worship and study together in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been here this summer, we've been going through the book of Revelation. We're right now at the end. John has been describing... The coming invasion of God. God plans to rid his creation of evil forever. And he's going to do that by the Lamb. He's going to fulfill creation, his purposes for creation. He's going to make it a mature, completed creation. Not like the innocent one that he created, uh, that Adam and Eve walked in. That was innocent, but with the potential for evil. It won't be like creation as we experience it, full of chaos and rebellion and evil. Instead, it will be a fully matured creation. One where, again, there is no sin or death or decay, and there's no potential for it either. So, 
He's invading creation. He's, John has told us about the scroll, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. He's described Babylon, the city of the beast, the unfaithful harlot whom the kings and nations commit their adulteries with. And along the way, John has also told us about the faithful army of the Lamb, which goes to battle against the beast and the nations by worshiping the Lamb, by telling the truth, by remaining faithful to the Lamb in persecution and suffering and death. In chapter 16, Rod taught us about the sixth seal, which leads to the nations of the earth gathering at Armageddon to go to war against the Lamb. Last week, Larry taught us on chapter 17, 18, the beginning of 19, and he taught us about how the, the nations are mourned already. The, the harlot is killed and the ways of the beast are mourned. So let's just think about that. The armies have gathered in chapter 16. 18, the losing army is already mourned. The battle hasn't happened yet. And they're already mourning for the losers. Chapter 19, we're already celebrating the victors. Again, the battle hasn't happened yet. There is no uncertainty about who's going to win this battle. It's already known who wins. The lamb must win. And yet the rebels are deciding to go to war anyway. They would rather go down fighting than submit to the king of kings. So when we come to Revelation 19 and 20, we know to expect the final battle, we can expect the lamb will win the final battle, and we expect all creation to be made right. God is wiping out evil and creating a new heaven and new earth where justice and righteousness reign. That's our expectation. When we get here, John doesn't disappoint our expectations. For once. We expect the lamb to destroy evil now, and here he comes. Here comes Christ in battle gear, ready for battle. What we might not expect is what he chooses for his weaponry. There are some readers of Revelation who come to the end and look forward to seeing a violent Jesus. Jesus finally fights violence with violence. The cross is great for getting God to forgive me, sure. But for really defeating evil, you have to fight fire with fire. You must defeat violence with violence. To win, the lamb must become a wolf. One example of this, Pastor Mark Driscoll says of the Jesus presented here in chapter 19. He says, in Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. In other words, the Jesus of Revelation 19 looks nothing like the Jesus of the rest of the New Testament. I guess I want to ask, is that a picture of Jesus as John presents him to us? Or is that a picture of the Jesus that we in our violent culture want to see? Do we see Jesus as violent because Revelation presents him as violent? Or because we want to baptize our violence? The early church read Revelation... Did they respond violently to the beastly empire, the Roman empire and the persecution they faced? No, they faced persecution just like Jesus faced persecution, faithfulness in suffering and martyrdom. A violent, destructive lamb would be a Pyrrhic victory. Jesus would have to become what he's trying to defeat. Indeed, that's not the picture that John gives us here in Revelation 19. So what are his weapons? How does he go to battle? 
Let's read verses 11 to 16 again. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So heaven opens and we see Christ. And we see his character revealed in kind of how John describes him. He's on a white horse. His eyes are a flame of fire. He has many diadems on his head. In name only known to himself, he judges and wages war righteously. He's a powerful conqueror. He's the most powerful person in the universe. He does bring judgment and war. But he does so righteously. There is not unrighteousness in him. More on his character. He's called faithful and true and the word of God. The lamb comes and remains what he always was. His character is to be faithful. He truly demonstrates who God is. He's not compromised or told lies about himself or about God. He's faithful and true. He's the word of God. He tells us about God's character and he comes with God's power. Yes, he comes as a conquering hero, righteous and pure. No compromise or unfaithfulness in him. So then his weapons. I want to point to two. Uh, First, you might not identify this as a weapon initially. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. I just want to make note of this. This is a violent image, right? A robe dipped in blood. He's He's got a lot of blood. But make note of when his robe is dipped in blood. Is this after the battle or before it? It's before the battle. Whose blood are we talking about then? It's his own blood. His robe is dipped in his own blood. His blood has already won this battle. This is his own blood. It's also perhaps the blood of the faithful martyrs. But the cross means that the battle is over before it starts. Evil is overcome as Jesus dies for us. It no longer, already, it no longer has power in creation. By the way, think of a Pyrrhic victory. Satan's victory over Jesus at the cross. There is no more Pyrrhic victory in history than that, right? Where Satan thinks, I've got the Son of God. I'm going to beat him. I'm going to put him on the cross and kill him. And he does. He kills the Son of God. And that act was the worst mistake Satan could have made in history. Putting the Son of God on the cross, letting the Son of God bleed from his head, his hands, his feet, and his side, Jesus walking into death and inviting death into the inner Trinitarian life of God is the thing that defeats sin and death forever. Satan won a victory, but it was a victory that cost him the war. And Jesus continues winning victories by his cross. He doesn't save us from sin by his sacrifice and then become some Rambo or Terminator or Iron Man in order to defeat evil and wipe it out. He remains consistent. He is faithful and true. He is himself 
both on the cross and at the final battle. The sacrificial lamb is who Jesus is. And it's what makes him the most powerful person in the universe. His second weapon is the sharp sword from his mouth. Again, he has a sword, but recognize where it comes from. It's from his mouth. This is the sword of the spirit, the word of God that comes out of the mouth of the one who here is called the word of God. He speaks judgment over the battle. And as we see, that ends the battle. He shows up and speaks and the battle's over. That's it. That's the whole battle. He speaks with the authority of the one who created the world by his word. He has the power to create. He also has the power to end evil forever. Creation has to submit to him when he speaks. John tells us that his armies follow him with white robes, riding white horses. Their robes, by the way, if you remember in chapter 7, their robes were made white in the blood of the Lamb. Again, I can't figure out the chemistry involved in that, but his robe, their ro- our robes are made white by his blood. And then he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is mighty. He rules over creation and its kings. Ray read the battle for us already. There's more about the birds than there are about the battle. There's just... John doesn't tell us anything about the battle. He says, the beast was captured. <laughs> That's it. That's the whole battle. Jesus, there's no question. There's no uncertainty here. Jesus wins the battle. And he wins it quickly without a fight. The birds, by the way, are a reference to Ezekiel chapter 39, where uh, God is uh, going to war against the nations who are rebelling against him. And he invites the birds to come and eat the flesh of the nations. Sounds very similar to here. The nations there are referred to as Gog and Magog, which show up at the end of chapter 20 um, in the second great battle, in 20 verse 8. Ezekiel 39 is pointing out that God's victory over the nations will be total and complete. That, I think, is John's point here too. God's victory is total, so complete that anybody left from all the nations will worship the Lamb. God will ultimately win. So the beast is seized, along with the false prophet, thrown into the lake of fire. The armies of the beast are killed by the sword from Christ's mouth. Again, this is his spoken word. He's not running around with a sword actually slaughtering people. He's speaking judgment against them. And then they are judged as he speaks it. To apply this, first, there is no war. Christ has already defeated sin and death. His cross has defeated sin. His resurrection has overcome death. Evil is done. Second, the nations who gather against him already know they've lost. They've decided, though, that they value their freedom. That is their ability to self-determine. Determine for myself what is good and evil. We value that more than we value submitting to the Lamb. If we seek self and the kind of freedom that the nations value over God and submitting ourselves to Him, we will ultimately end up fighting against Him, even knowing that we're going to lose. Our pursuit of freedom for ourselves leads to death. The kind of freedom that God made us for is freedom to follow the Lamb. 
Freedom from sin and death. Freedom to sacrifice ourselves for others as we submit ourselves to the Lamb. That's the kind of freedom he calls us to, not this freedom of self-determining. Again, he wins by his death on the cross and by his word. He does not fight with the world's weapons. This is no Pyrrhic victory. He fights as faithful and true, defeats evil truly without compromise. So for us, don't give in, don't compromise, don't choose to live unfaithfully. Don't give up the moral high ground in order to see evil defeated. We fight against evil as overcomers. The battle is already won. We already know who wins. We don't need to live compromised. We're called together to resist evil. Michael Gorman, in his helpful book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, tells us in what ways we fight. How do we fight against evil? He says, Christian resistance, like warfare, isn't passive, but active. It consists of the formation of communities and individuals who pledge allegiance to God alone, who live in nonviolent love towards friends and enemies alike, who leave vengeance to God but bear witness to God's coming judgment and salvation, who create by God's Spirit many cultures of life as alternatives to the empire's cultures of death, and invite all who desire life with God to repent and worship God and the Lamb. The will of God is that all might follow the Lamb and participate in the present and coming life of God with us forever. As we resist evil, we invite others to join the kingdom of the Lamb. So the battle is over. The end of chapter 19. And then we get to chapter 20, which is one of the simplest, least controversial chapters in all of Scripture. Daryl Johnson's term for this next few verses is millennial madness. Verses 2 to 7 contain six total references to a millennium or a thousand-year period. Uh, In fact, the term here translated thousand occurs ten times in the New Testament. Eight of those times are in Revelation. Six of them are in this passage. The other two outside of Revelation are both in 2 Peter 3, chapter 8, where Peter reminds his readers not to forget that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The New Testament has nothing else to say about a period of a thousand years where Satan will be bound and then released. The Old Testament has nothing to say about a thousand year period where Satan will be bound and then released. When the Old Testament talks about a thousand anything, except for counting people or showing off your wealth, it talks about God's mercies to a thousand generations, or the fact that one day in the courts of God are better than thousands of days elsewhere. In other words, there are whole theological systems built around six verses in Revelation. Let's make note of the fact, numbers are symbolic in Revelation, let's make note of the fact that it's six and not seven. If it were seven, maybe we could build a whole theological system around it. But six, I don't know. That hasn't stopped people from building theological systems around these verses. Millennial systems. There are premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists and panmillennialists. Just for reference, premillennialists are those who say Jesus will come back before the millennium. Postmillennialists say Jesus will come back after the millennium. Amillennialists say that the millennium is a spiritual reality and that Jesus is already reigning. 
and pan-millennialists say that it will all pan out in the end. (laughs) And there are good and faithful followers of Jesus who agree with each of these systems. And they have good and biblical reasons for believing as they do. So I'm not trying to convince you to change your mind if you hold strongly to one or another of these uh, positions. Not one of these positions makes you a better or worse follower of Jesus. As we talked about it in staff uh, this week, there was meaningful disagreement among the pastors at Cole. But I got the text, so here's where I stand. (laughs) When I read Revelation alongside the rest of Scripture, I just don't see enough information about a millennium to label any position that I would take with the label millennial. Now, I graduated from high school and became an adult right around the turn of the millennium. So in that sense, I'm a millennial. But that's it. John just doesn't give us enough information, at least for me. So what does John say? What is he trying to communicate with this set of texts? Two things, I think. First... In verses 1 to 3, John is telling us that Satan is bound. There's no real fight here, by the way. It says, uh, 20 verse 1, I saw an angel come down from heaven, and he seized the dragon and bound him for a thousand years. Now, let's just make note of this. Satan, the most powerful evil being in the universe, is bound by some unnamed angel. It's not God the Father. It's not the Lamb in, like, conquering gear, military gear. It's some angel that John doesn't even tell us his name. Satan just isn't that powerful. He just isn't. We give Satan a lot of power by our fear of him or by believing his lies or by participating with him in destroying creation. But in reality, unless we give Satan power, he just can't do anything. Remember the garden. He couldn't do anything, but Adam and Eve were deceived by him. He just doesn't have power. Just like darkness has no real power over light. When light shows up in the room, the darkness runs. Just like cold has no real power over heat. When heat shows up, the cold disappears. Similarly, Satan has no real power. God has all the power. God creates. He raises from the dead. He loves creatively and powerfully. He restores broken lives. He makes beauty out of ugliness. I think that's the first point that John wants to get across here. Satan has no real power. He's powerless before the God of the universe. The second point that John wants to make Describes the rule of the faithful in verses 4 to 6. Let me read that. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads with their hands. They came to life and they raised with Christ, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Throughout Revelation, it looks like the beast and its followers are in charge. 
They kill the two witnesses. They drink the blood of the saints. They're ruling over most of creation. They're in charge. But in the end, they will not rule on the earth. The saints do. The martyrs do. This is a mighty reversal, a vindication of God's people. Uh, Richard Balcom, in his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation, which I've quoted before from up here, because I like it, um, talks about the point of the millennium. For him, the theological point of the millennium is solely to demonstrate the triumph of the martyrs. Those whom the beast put to death are those who will truly live, eschatologically. And those who contested the beast's right to rule and suffered for it are those who will in the end rule as universally as the beast, but for much longer, for a thousand years. The beast is limited. Thousand years, that's how long the the martyrs get to rule. The lamb rules on earth with his faithful witnesses. They're ruling with him. And yes, after this, Satan is released. But again, he has no power. He deceives people who are already deceived. He gathers them for war and then loses just as pathetically as the beast lost the last time. Let's, let's read the second great battle that ends history. Uh, this is in verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire. <laughs> There's your battle. Where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever. Fire came down from heaven and consumed. Like, there's just no battle. God shows up and Satan is defeated. In the end, the millennium is all about Satan's final end and about the vindication of rule of those who remain faithful to the Lamb. If we remain faithful, even when it looks like we're being defeated by evil, even when it looks like evil wins, if we remain faithful, we are preparing ourselves to rule with the Lamb. It may be that John is trying to say other things about by this use of the millennium. I'm open to that conversation. There just isn't that much information. So if you want to come talk more about it, I'd love to do that. Uh, please let me know. But um, that's kind of where I stand. After the millennium and the final, final battle, verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20, tell us about the final judgments. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see this great judgment, judged from the books, the book of life, and then judged according to our deeds. So I want to make note of both of those things. The book of life, I think, is referring to the fact that we are judged primarily by whether or not we submit to Jesus as king. If we are under his blood, we are saved. We are also, it says, judged according to our deeds. Both somehow are true. And just to back that up, other New Testament references to judgment also have this idea of judgment according to our deeds. 
Matthew 25, the judge separates sheep from goats based on how we care for Jesus made real to us in the least of these brothers and sisters of his. 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells us that we will all be judged according to what we've done. As here in Revelation, our deeds matter. They have importance when it comes to judgment. But we are saved by the crucial deed. Do we, do we align ourselves with the lamb or with the dragon? Do we submit to the lamb as Lord or do we take the mark of the beast? Revelation suggests that our lives must begin to look like the lamb. Our deeds must be heading toward righteousness or we might just make it in as through fire, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3. Big takeaways of the judgment are this. One, Jesus will judge righteously. He will judge and he will do so righteously. He's in charge of the end of history. He is good and wise and right. We can trust him with the outcome. Secondly, and this I think is the point of the whole passage, all evil will be removed. Amazing. This is a great hope for us. The evil inside of me and outside of me, all of it will be gone. I am looking forward to that. Creation will be everything that God made it to be. Right from the beginning, when Adam and Eve first sinned in Genesis chapter 3, we've been looking forward to the moment when God would eliminate evil completely. And now, at the end of chapter 20, we've reached that moment. Evil will be eliminated, completely wiped out. So the question for us then is, are you and I going to choose short-term comfort now, compromise with the world now, or will we choose to follow the Lamb, no matter how uncomfortable that makes us, how much suffering we face, how much success we have to turn down? Those are Pyrrhic victories, and they will be judged for what they are, compromises with evil, failures to, to go to battle for the kingdom. The Lamb's blood covers over multitudes of sins. But we do have to side ourselves with Him. It is no good to harden our souls with thousands of little compromises and thousands of little corruptions and then hope that our souls soften at the end. Instead, follow the Lamb now. Receive His grace now. Fight faithfully with His army. So if you've not submitted to the Lamb yet, let today be your day. Give yourself to him and to his kingdom. Let him write your name in his book. Let his judgment over you be this. This one is paid for by the blood of the lamb. And if you name Jesus as Lord and Savior already, but you're still trapped by the ways of the beast, you still love the world, you still find yourself in compromise to the world, well, welcome to the club. We're all still in that place. Maybe you're like me, And that the more we find victories over sin in my heart, the more I discover is there. I'm grateful for a God who saves even me, a sinner who still finds the harlot attractive and who still finds the weapons of the beast compelling. I'm grateful for the blood of the lamb that makes me white as snow, that both covers my sin and heals me from it. And if you're there with me, then let's continue to pursue repentance and wholeness. On the one hand, we can live in grace 
and embrace the fact that we're just sinners. Come to peace with that fact that we're not going to be made totally whole until the new Jerusalem. We can have grace for ourselves. And we can continue to repent of the evil that we find in ourselves and help each other to repent. So Father, forgive us and continue to shape us to be more and more faithful by your Spirit. The big picture here at the end of chapter 20, the Lamb overcomes evil. The evil in our lives and in creation will be gone forever. The result at the end of Revelation 20 is this. Death is defeated. Sin is gone. Evil is overthrown. God's total victory over evil is complete. As the hymn tells us, death is dead. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Dad gets to preach on the new heaven and new earth next week. I just want to preview a little bit. Evil is now out of the way. It's gone. There's no more temptation, no more sin, no more anything that would disrupt or destroy God's good creation. As Jesus' resurrection body is to his mortal body that suffered death, so is the new heaven and new earth to this creation that we know. Jesus, after his resurrection, he could no longer die. He had all kinds of strange powers, no longer threatened by anything. Chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation will see that creation has been remade in a similar way. It's no longer subject to decay. There will no longer be corruption or temptation. No more destruction of any kind. Instead, we see a flourishing, good, creative, beautiful new creation. After the end of evil, all that is left is God and God's good purposes for us and everything he made. And we will have perfect intimacy with him. It will be the consummation of the marriage between the lamb and his bride, the church. Between God and creation, between heaven and earth, there'll be no more distance between God and us. We will be united for eternity. The Lamb's victory over evil is total and final. This is no Pyrrhic victory where the Lamb beats Satan, but instead introduces new evil through hatred or evil or violence. Instead, the Lamb completes the victory by his blood and by his word so that he remains faithful. He remains gracious. He is still sacrificial and loving while defeating those who would destroy creation. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is judge and warrior, champion and savior. At the cross, he defeated all enemies. His total victory will be completed in a consummated new heaven and new earth. He defeats Satan. He invites us to rule with him. He judges evil and removes it forever from his good creation. And he is wooing us to himself to be his faithful bride and join him in the perfect world that he is preparing for us. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we praise you. Your plan for salvation is way beyond us. It's amazing what you've accomplished and what you will accomplish through the blood of Jesus and through the power of your word. Father, we praise you that you set this thing up so that you could fulfill your purposes Uh, for all creation. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you that you came and shed your blood for us. And we praise you because of your blood, because you died on the cross for us, you are worthy to open the scroll and you are the most powerful person in the universe. Holy Spirit, we praise you. We invite you to come and continue changing us, making us new. Would you make us faithful followers of Jesus by your power in us?
We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.